Welcome back, everyone, to Centering, the Asian American Christian podcast. Uh, we are so glad that you have been joining us for this special season focused on Filipino American ministry and identity and other issues related to our community. And today we have a very special guest who is going to bring a very important perspective to us as listeners, especially for those of us who are based in the United States, since he is not. And a little bit of background, our very special guest today is Father Daniel Franklin Pilario. And Father Danny is someone who I was privileged to connect with through my Dr. Mutter. And for those who are not familiar with that term, that is my doctoral mother or my PhD dissertation supervisor, Dr. Hilla Hocker at Loyola University in Chicago. When I was studying under her, writing my dissertation, she continually recommended to me the work of Father Danny and even pulled out from her bookshelf in her office a copy, a hard copy of one of his works, which she was so proud to have in her hands. Eventually, after I was finished, she did connect me with him because Father Danny was recently in the United States holding a position at St. John's University in New York. A little bit about him before we ask him to introduce himself in greater detail. Father Danny is a member of the Congregation of the Mission. In other words, he is a Vincentian in the Philippines, and he is an associate professor and dean of the St. Vincent School of Theology and Adamson University in Quezon City, Philippines. Actually, he has a new title, which he'll share with us in a moment. Comes from the barangay of Hagdan in the municipality of Oslob in the province of Cebu in the Philippines. So let me pause there and just make a connection because our co-host Eleanor is also rooted in Cebu as well. So Eleanor, would you like to say hello? Hi everyone, this is Eleanor. Thank you so much for joining us, Father Danny. My family comes from a small, small island in Cebu, two hour, a two hour pump boat away from uh, Cebu. It's called Poro, like, or Camotes is like the little neighborhood. So shout out to my Cebuanos. <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah. Yes. And this is also, again, a rare occurrence because not only are Eleanor and I both Visayan by background and we're not Tagalogs, but we have Father <laughs> Danny, who is also a Cebuano, but speaks multiple languages, of course. Real quick uh, background, Father Danny earned an undergrad philosophy degree at Adamson University, a bachelor's in theology at UST, or University of Santo Tomas, and a master's and doctoral degrees at the Louvain, okay, in Belgium. So we are very excited to welcome Father Danny Pilario. Thank you for being here, Yay. Father Danny. Um, would you like to tell us a little bit more about yourself and where you are in this moment as you've transitioned from the United States back to the Philippines and into a new role. Thank you very much, uh, Jay, and thank you very much, Eleanor, for inviting me into this podcast. Uh, it's it's a very privileged moment for me to be able to address people from the United States, people who are in the ministry and the theological academe in, into a conversation which is very important during these times. I am Danny Pilario. People call me Danny. I have been teaching for the last 20, 25 years of my life. So 
I wow. have been teaching philosophy. I have been teaching sociology and theology. Well, depending if there is a professor or <laughs> professor. I have been a dean. So the dean answers for some professors who could not teach. So, But uh, I have been also doing multidisciplinary approaches, both in theology and in philosophy. There is another juggling between two worlds. I teach on the weekdays from Monday to Friday, like, like the rest of us or who are professors or correct papers or prepare our lessons or write articles. Mm-hmm. But weekdays, I also work in ministry in a garbage dump parish in Payatas of Quezon City. Mm-hmm. For those who know the Philippines, uh, Payatas is the garbage dump of the whole greater Manila area, which is around 15 million people. And all the garbage of that population goes into Payatas. Mm-hmm. And I have been working there for on weekends for the last 20 years. Uh, helping in the parish of the Vincenzas. So I, I would like to say this from the start because this mm-hmm. also colors the way I read theology uh, from ministry and ministry into theology. At the moment, I well, as mentioned, I have been last year as uh, acted as chair of social justice in St. James University in New York, also teaching graduate studies in theology. But at, at the moment, I'm back in Adamson University uh, doing directorship of research and development of the said university. I'm still teaching theology from time to time, but I am I'm doing other research stuff for the university. You would know about me as we go along in this podcast. Thank you. Yes. And there is a lot that we want our listeners to know about you that I've been really honored and grateful to learn. Um, One of the reasons we are so excited to have you here, Father Danny, is because, of course, you're a very accomplished scholar and with expertise in many different subjects. But also, you are a pastor. And you and I first connected because I found it so interesting that we're trying to hold together these worlds that are so often disconnected, especially in uh, the Western academia or in the United States ministry context. So I want to raise a question for our listeners because most of them and us are based in the United States or in North America. What might Filipino American Christians and others who are not in the Philippines, what might they need to know and understand about the suffering specifically of the poor in recent years uh, in the Philippines. And I would love it also if you would feel free to speak about the extrajudicial killings and the challenges in government that affect the poor as you have worked with and served them in the recent years. Uh, Thanks for for the question, Jay. Uh... As you will know, uh, well, many of you are based in the United States, but maybe your parents or your friends have come from the Philippines uh, originally. Uh, The greatest problem of poverty in the Philippines is caused mainly by, for instance, natural disasters. You have heard about the greatest typhoon of Mm -hmm. all times, Haiyan, in 2013 which really affected a lot of people in the Visayas area where, where, we came, mm-hmm. where we came from. 
I think, uh, easily had 10,000 to 15,000 casualties. Mm. That, that typhoon in 2013. The recent one is in 2021, last December, hit the same area. Cebu, Leyte, Bohol, and all these areas in the Visayas. Mm-hmm. So there is anything that causes poverty in the Philippines. It's also natural disasters. We have 20 typhoons hitting the Philippines every year, mm-hmm. and five of them are very destructive. That alone already hampers economic progress, right. not to mention earthquakes and uh, everything like that. No? Mm-hmm. But if we come to think of it, these are called natural disasters, but it is also human-induced disasters. Mm-hmm. Like, for instance, landslides, but also typhoon, which are the results actually of climate change. Mm-hmm. If you look at the victims of typhoons, these small islands facing the Pacific Ocean, mm-hmm. which has actually no electricity at all, no greenhouse uh, green, greenhouse gas emission. Mm-hmm. Ironically, the most hit, the most persons who suffer all these calamities mm-hmm. caused by climate change, which are caused by greenhouse emission in some parts of the world. Mm-hmm. So you see, as you think of, of natural disasters, they are not, not really pure natural disasters. They're also human-induced mm-hmm. disasters. Mm-hmm. That, that's one. The other problem of poverty in the Philippines is actually political corruption. Mm-hmm. And since the time of Marcos, we have actually suffered one corrupt regime over another. Mm-hmm. And the most ironic thing is that the son of Marcos won again. Mm-hmm. So, how can you ever think of people who looted our country and now being cheered by millions again? Mm-hmm. That that that's the problem of that's the problem of corruption in the Philippines. Mm-hmm. This is what 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 you call the the oligarchic rule in the Philippines. Sure, one group of elites over another, changing hands. In political power mm-hmm. and because of that people who are supposed to enjoy the benefits of government are not doing it because these politicians pocket all these mm-hmm. that that's the cause if you want to think about it the cause of filipinos going abroad at the moment you have 11 to 12 million filipinos mm-hmm. out of 100 million filipinos that's easily 10% mm-hmm. or 11% mm-hmm. of the population out of the philippines in search of better jobs or better life mm-hmm. but in the end if you think about workers in saudi arabia hong kong singapore or european cities these filipinos or filipinas are doing dirty jobs mm-hmm. what they call pity jobs Dirty, demeaning, and uh, dangerous Mm -hmm. jobs. Precisely because of poverty. Mm -hmm. So if you want to look at the situation of the Philippines from the context of poverty, this this explains it all. Now, you you asked me about the extrajudicial killings. Mm -hmm. For me, this is the epitome of the oppression of the poor. Mm I have, as I have said earlier, I have been act- working in this garbage dump parish since 
2002 maybe until until now that I'm here. Mm-hmm. Every weekend I have known the parish for 18 years. When Duterte came to power, his uh, signature program, whatever he calls it, is to have a drug-free Philippines. Mm-hmm. And in order to achieve that, he actually killed addicts. Mm-hmm. I mean, literally told the police to kill the addicts. And one of the greatest hit areas is our parish, oh, wow. was our I can still remember we were burying people, hmm. eight or ten people every week, killed oh. just oh, wow. the, the police would enter their small shanties. There are no doors. These are shanties right. next to the garbage dump. And the police would look at their list and say, are you Juan de la Cruz? And if you say yes, they will just shoot you like point blank, hmm. even in front of their children. We have been taking care of these orphans. And for me, this is not just disrespect of the human being. This is disrespect to the poor. Mm -hmm. Because, well, the rich people who are using drugs were not killed. They have their own gates. They have their own security guards. Mm -hmm. They have their own enclaves, but not the poor. Mm -hmm. And, 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 And it is precisely why... This is a war on drugs, but war on the poor, mm-hmm. who are actually blamed to be using drugs wow. in order to achieve what, what Duterte calls the drug-free Philippines. Mm-hmm. That is why we concentrated our ministry on this group of people, because they actually, for us, are the real victims of the abuse of politics in the populist politics, but also corrupt politics because the policeman who kills them would get incentives for that. So you see, the corruption, in fact, we have what we call the economy of the war on drugs. And that economy goes down all the way to the police, to the funeral homes that takes Mm. care of the dead people. All these Mm. are placed into the hands and into the shoulders of the poor. Wow. So, if if you look at the situation, it's it's really really difficult. And now that Marcos has won, the son of Marcos has won, mm-hmm. and the daughter of the thirty has won, we are in a very very difficult situation. Mm. We are afraid again. When by the time that they have been proclaimed, they are shooting again in Payat, mm. and the children are crying again, looking for help because they are very afraid. That what happened to them like six years ago will happen again. Hmm. So this is the present situation. Yeah, wow. You know, that's a very um, sobering and tragic depiction Mm -hmm. of what's happening there. But it's so important for our listeners who are not near to the Philippines to hear those things. And, you know, I think that we've been in conversation and I've been following your posts and writings for some time, but this is such an important reality for many of our folks in North America who are insulated to grapple with. Uh, and, And I just am so grateful that you're raising this for us, even though our listeners may, you know, find it shocking. Uh, That seems necessary, perhaps. Yeah. 
I, I tried talking about this when I was uh, in New York, I had to deliver speeches and talks. And when I show some videos and talk about it, people were shocked and said, is that really happening? Mm. I told them, yes, 33,000 or more are killed since six years ago. Mm. I mean, the casualty is even more than maybe, I don't know, Ukraine, uh, whatever, Syria. But we are not heard because we do not get uh, media mileage. Mm -hmm. It's not announced in CNN. It's not announced on BBC or Fox News. But this is happening. That's why we need we need to say this, mm -hmm. that people are killed. And, and if you multiply the victims, 33,000 times if the, the, each victim would have three children and one wife or so, this is a lot of people being affected, mm -hmm. not only psychologically, because the trauma is really, really difficult to bear, and the, the children, you could really not understand their own dynamics now because they could not handle what they are feeling. Mm -hmm. But also economically, because the breadwinners are killed. Mm -hmm. And who's going to take care of five, seven children without food on the table? Mm -hmm. And then the pandemic struck mm -hmm. as if the problems are not enough. Mm -hmm. You see, the, this is really difficult. And pandemic plus no food on the table, hunger, plus political persecution. Mm -hmm. Because the police who are threatened by the voices of these people, of these women and widows, continues to threaten them in that area. Mm -hmm. Roam around and, well, threaten and whatever, make people and sow fear in the community. Mm -hmm. So, the, for, that is why for me, this is really, if, if you look at uh, oppression, if you look at victimization, if you look at uh, real, uh, what, how do you call this, uh, real suffering, the epitome of that, the peak of that, is the, are the victims of the extrajudicial mm. I want to continue with this topic because I find it interesting that for a lot of our listeners, they might be reflecting on their own experience in the United States, especially during 2020, when there was significant uprising over the killing of George Floyd on video. And then, of course, political division and strife and people were protesting in the streets. You know, I live in Chicago, Father Danny. Uh, you've been to DePaul University, the Vincentian School, where I went to college. And I, I know you uh, presented on this topic there and Dr. Hilla Hawker, my, my Dr. Mutter was, was there also and was really taken by the urgency of what you were presenting. And it's not entirely different from many cities in the United States. For instance, in Chicago, we have on the south and west sides every weekend, dozens of shootings, sometimes, you know, double digit deaths in one weekend, especially during the summertime. And those are the neighborhoods where poverty and where racism have kind of historically uh, manifest their, their worst fruits, if you will. And it's similar to what you're saying related to corruption in government, uh, preying on the most vulnerable. And so I want to pivot here because now we're pastors, we're theologians, we're followers of Jesus, and we're speaking to an audience of ministry-minded people, seminarians, psychologists. How does your Christian faith 
and your theology, how do they inform the way that you respond and persevere and continue to speak up, especially in relationship to government? Yeah, thanks for that question because uh, it's, it's a very difficult question. It's a very difficult challenge to respond to, especially in front of the threat of the government. When you speak up against a government in the context of the defense of the victims, mm -hmm. you will become a victim yourself. There were several priests, sisters, who were not only sued in court mm -hmm. for rebellion because they spoke up against the regime. Most of them, my friends, so some of them are into hiding. Hmm. Some of them went to other countries uh, in order to escape the persecution. But some of some of my friends were in fact killed. Hmm. So to be able to speak up against a regime in defense of the victims and in the name of the Christian faith is actually a big challenge. Hmm. Yeah. It's a call that you need to respond. Otherwise, your own life meaning and even my name as a Christian would be at stake. Hmm. In the midst of these killings, people were saying you don't you don't have to speak. My family from Cebu, uh, since I'm working in Manila, would always uh, send me a message. You keep quiet because you, you will be hit next. Hmm. Because they already know that many ministers were already we're already, already victims of the regime. But mm. I, how can I ever sleep at night thinking that I have left the people and the flock whom God has given me to take care of? Hmm. Of course, I do not really live together with them next to their shanties, but I know them personally. And every time something happens, I get a text from the place from from the place where I live. Mm -hmm. So can I keep quiet? Can I not risk my life in the name of security, personal security? Mm. And what would be the meaning of my life? Uh, how can I live as a minister? How can I continue as a minister? Mm -hmm. But how can I continue as a Christian without saying anything, mm -hmm. without defending them? Without being, without standing with them. Hmm. That's a basic question that has always pestered me every time I go out of the, of the place of my ministry. Hmm. In the end, one, one uh, you know, in, in the Philippines, we have this Simbangabi or hmm. nine days of preparation for Christmas. Hmm. One of those Simbangabi, I have to put my, put my foot down and say, this is it. I have to say something and condemn these killings. Mm -hmm. What triggered me is the coffin of one of the victims who was actually there for two weeks and could not be buried. He already, wow. the body already starts to stink. And people were not going into it, were not helping because they were also afraid. Hmm. And me, who was the minister, did not also do anything. Hmm. So at that on, on that day, I have to say, this mass is meaningless. 
if we don't bury or help bury that dead. That's right. Tomorrow you will come again. We will say to each other, peace be with you. We will kiss each other and hmm. give each other's gift because it's almost Christmas. But without burying that neighbor hmm. who we know is a victim, this is useless. Hmm. So don't come back tomorrow until we have helped that family bury their dead. Wow. Only then did the people go around, go go to the visit the dead and help and get some help everywhere. They buried that person one day before Christmas. Hmm. And on Christmas Day, we told us, I told them, at least we have helped bury their dead. This is also Christmas for all of us. Hmm. Wow. This, this for me is the meaning of our Christian calling. We place ourselves on the line, I know. The police knows us. But once we protect the victims, I think we are placing our lives on the line. But that's prophetic calling. Mm -hmm. uh, that's, that's the incident when, when I said, well, from here on, God will take care of us. Wow. appreciate about um, what you're saying Father Danny is I mean that story is very very moving and uh, something that I appreciate from what you said is you're highlighting the the conflict that you I experience um, sometimes of you know I, I, I understand I'm putting my security on the line um, but this is my calling to be a follower of Christ um, to celebrate Christmas in this way even though it's not with the gifts and with the Christmas lights and the songs, even though that's part of it too. I think it can be easy for those of us who are in a different context to take a look at prophets, like prophetic actions like that and say, oh, like I could never, I could never do that. I could never be so courageous, never be so brave. But I think what you're highlighting is that you still experience that conflict, but being, being family, being connected with these people is what spurs you into that courage. Um, and into that motivation and that that's that's how you see your central part of your mm -hmm. faith informing like who you are and, and what you do from day to day so i just really appreciate you highlighting that tension that you feel and how you continue to push forward hmm. and so i i also come from a catholic background and <laughs> i'm in the world of psychology so slightly different from the world of theology but something that i've been struggling with is reconciling my faith with a lot of the research and the, the studies that I'm looking at in my particular field because we're growing um, as a field in our research but we're still figuring out how do we integrate um, faith and religion which is so important to the Filipino community and to so many of our lives into our psychological practice and so a big question that comes up for a lot of us is is how do we uh, continue to decolonize our psychology, continue to decolonize our minds and our theories while still practicing uh, Christianity, Catholicism, when a lot of people consider that to be a scar of colonialism. 
it's it's so connected to the history of, of Filipino people and, and our suffering. And so I was just wondering if I could get your perspective on, on how we hmm. as Christians can continue to live out these authentic, bold, brave faith lives um, while also struggling with the decolonization aspect of, of our faith. Thanks, Eleanor, for, for that very, very deep question. Uh, it's true that Christianity in the Philippines is and has been and continually used in colonial in colonial regimes before until today. Mm -hmm. It has been always used as an instrument of colonial oppression from the times of the Spanish regimes, later on with the Protestant groups in the American regime. And until today, Christianity with its uh, with its international superpower image mm -hmm. continues to be a colonial instrument. Mm -hmm. However, there are a lot of studies in the Philippines which actually talks about the resistance mm -hmm. present in the Christian practices of Filipino people. That's good. Mm -hmm. And an example of that is a study on the passion and revolution by Reynaldo Eleto. Uh, that's a very classic study mm -hmm. in the 19, 1970s. Passion is this verse form of salvation history in, in which is chanted by Filipinos every Holy Week mm -hmm. from Holy Monday up to Good Friday. And people, especially in the Tagalog area, would know and would go to the Passion. Mm -hmm. But Ileto was saying, as the Passion was used by the Spaniards, to be an instrument of colonization, like instilling in them the silence of Jesus being led to the slaughter, like dutiful and obedient colonial subject. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, the Filipinos were actually given an alternative view of a good life and a different world in the resurrection of Jesus in the same manner. Mm -hmm. So the, his study was actually about the revolutionary movements that take the passion and its alternative worldview in order to project for themselves a liberated community mm -hmm. beyond the Spanish regime. That's good. So you see that, that, that even a colonial instrument can become an instrument of resistance by the colonized. Yeah. That's, that's an example of... of mm. uh, a religious practice in the Philippines. But many of the same practices in the Philippines are, are of the same line. For instance, in the Catholic Philippines, confession confession is another thing. No? The missionaries were so amused. Why do people go to confession? Sometimes they beg on their knees to confess. Hmm. But another scholar, uh, Vicente Rafael, contracting colonialism says, that actually confession is a way of the oppressed negotiating with the oppressor. Mm -hmm. So when you, because this, the missionaries were also thinking, they confess, but they don't confess their own sins. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they confess the sins of their mother, of their great-grandfather, etc., but not their own. So they refuse to be colonized. At the same time, they negotiate. Wow. So... 
tawad in the Philippines. Mm. Tawad is twofold. Tawad means you ask for forgiveness. But tawad also means to haggle, to negotiate. So the, mm. the, this, this double truth of religion mm. actually is present in many of the practices in the Philippines as Christians, ordinary Christians, poor Christians negotiate with the powers that be. In order to connect it with the extrajudicial killings, one of the things that I notice in many of these weeks is that chick in front or on top of the coffins of the victims. Chick. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and, and that live chick is uh, like eating the grains. And I was wondering, in almost all the weeks, there is always two or three chicks on top of the coffin. Right? The Americans could not imagine how what what's going on here. Sure. But anyway, the, the wakes in the Philippines they stay for two weeks, three weeks, or something like that. And when I asked one grandmother, she told me, "You know, Father, we don't know who killed him. He was killed in an unjust manner. As the chick picks on the grain, he also pricks on the conscience of the person who did." Wow. wow. When when I was driving back, I was asking myself, telling myself, the poor really are poor because they have nothing, no one to go to. Not the courts, not the police, maybe not even the church. Hmm. All these institutions are there to oppress him. But you know what? The chick is God's justice and their prayer that God will remit justice. In the Amen. Mm-hmm. This is a practice of religion. Mm-hmm. Sometimes some people say superstitious religion. But this is the belief of the poor. Religion being used as oppression, but religion also this time being used as an instrument of liberation. Mm-hmm. If the structures of society do not help us, God will come and bring his justice. Wow. Yeah. Wow. For, for me, that 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 is how ambivalent religion is. It can be used for oppression mm-hmm. as it has been used in the colonial times until today. But the poor tells us that God will bring us justice anyway. Yes, hmm. I love so much about what you just said. The idea that this tool that was used for colonial um, oppression could be reconstituted by Filipinos, by Christians who uh, tap into God-given creativity, God-given resilience, and God-given joy even, um, and can use that to liberate it. It's kind of funny and, and ironic how we can take something that is meant for pain and turn it into something that will liberate us um, and and can be a fuller expression of who we are. Um, it also reminds me a little bit of like jeepney art, right? The um, you know jeepneys. Hmm. For those of you who don't know, you know it's these like uh, military vehicles, and now they're used all over the Philippines as as a mode of public transportation, and they're always so colorful. And the jeepney driver puts you know their own spin on it and there's stickers Mm -hmm. they paint it usually there's like images of jesus on it somewhere and so it it just reminds me of this idea that 
Filipino people have this history of taking something that was one thing at first and and can turn it into something beautiful and cool and and something to, to a creative way of expression so i just i really love that idea and it's making me wonder about how can i do that in my own life now um, in america and and what are some of the ways that i experience oppression or see oppression around me um, and what can i do to to like gypnify it. <laughs> that's that's not a good that's not a good verb, but I'm turning it into a verb. Gypnify um, something in my life. That's so good. I yeah, I'm putting that one in my pocket. Thank you, Father Danny. Hmm. Father Danny, some of what you're saying is challenging probably for many of our listeners, especially if they're receiving their formation and their training in the United States. And one of the reasons for that is because of the affluence and the comfort. But when I think about your work, you know, the title of your book and also some of how you've presented it in the past, back to the rough grounds of praxis, exploring theological method with Pierre Bourdieu. This, to me, you're holding together both praxis and theological method. Your life among the poor and ministry alongside them as they suffer with theological reflection and critical reflection, even on difficult topics like colonialism. What Eleanor was touching on is really true, even in the theology world as well, especially in the United States. There's this bias among many people in ethnic studies and in social science or humanities fields against religion, especially Christianity, because the assumption is you cannot hold them together, but you're talking about holding them together in ways that we might be surprised by. Mm -hmm. And I guess what I would love to have you ad address our audience with directly is, you know, what is the value or the importance of serving the poor and those who suffer as we are learning to do theology? Thank you. Thank you for that question. Actually, that question is a reigning question in my life since I started to do theology. The, the, the question that I have to that I have to answer myself is what is the meaning of theologizing? What does it mean to do theology? Because I can do theology from the library alone. I can comment from Bart to Skelebix to Runner to whoever. Mm -hmm. And I can produce a book doing that inside uh, an air-conditioned library, like <laughs> in the academic field alone. I mean, I, without ev even going somewhere, I can write a, well, like most books, they are produced in the libraries. Wow. I have been always interested with theological method, how to do theology from the start. So I really read all the stuff on theological method. And I was telling myself, the people in my village would not understand. That's right. Mm, yeah. I mean, it's not about us. It's not about me. It's about the people in my village. It's it's about the people in Payatas. So what's the meaning of God's message if it would not be meaningful to the people in Payatas or yeah. the people in my village? That's, that's a very simple question. Yes. If God is here to be able to give us a message and this message does not reach them or is not meaningful to them, what is the meaning of my book? 
or what's the meaning of my life as a theologian. So I already knew from the start that even as I work in the academe and write articles, books, or whatever, what informs this theologizing, my life, my life in the academe is actually my life in the ministry. Hmm. So I need both poles, if you want. Questions that I ask in theology. That's good. Mm. But but the questions or the answers in theology should also be meaningful in the life of the people in Payatas. So I look at myself as some sort of tourist guide who translates <laughs> <laughs> something from one world to the other. So yes. I need to shuttle off these two worlds. And it's precisely the meaning of the title of the book, Back to the Rough Grounds of Praxis. Because actually, theology has lived in the life of theory. It has forgotten for praxis. But praxis is where God speaks, not in theory. Hmm. In fact, the, our theory falls short, does not even approximate what happens in the life of people in praxis. Now, it could be the poor in Bayatas. It could be the poor in my village. But it could be the poor that, oh, it could be everybody in the church pew that is that that you are taking care of in the ministry. LGBTQ, uh, people with HIV AIDS, uh, people who are sick uh, with mental issues. Mm -hmm. All the questions generated in these fields mm -hmm. of praxis actually are the sources of theology. So I, I think that that is why for me, there are oxymorons like applied theology or practical mm. theology. I love or, it. Or, what, what is that theology that needs to be applied? In the first place, all theologies yes. should be applied. There you go. Uh, uh, practical theology, but all theologies should, should be practical. Yes. I mean, if your theology is not practical, it's not theology at all. So this is precisely Amen. where ministry comes into 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 the into, without ministry there is no life in theology i i think I that it. is why mm -hmm. theology needs to go back to the rough grounds where people live mm -hmm. i have a, a very a very colorful story with this i think theologies or churches for that matter are closed entities in closed universes which actually are close to the voices of the people. Hmm. So I did once a research on uh, sexual violence against women in the, in the experience of the Philippines. Hmm. We interviewed sexually violated women from different fields and dimensions. And we invited them to speak in front of theologians. So the theologians will be <laughs> disturbed. With, with the phenomenon of sexual violence. And, mm. and one of the women, she came from Cebu. She spoke Cebuano. <laughs> and, and then she told the theologians, you know, when I was raped, I went to the church. And the one in charge of the church, closing the door, found me <laughs> and sent me out of the church because it's 8 o'clock in the evening and, we're, and they're closing. I ran, I ran to the cemetery. And there, 
I found peace. When I was listening to her, I, I, th I thought to myself, the church has been so close, its theologies included, that ironically, a victim only finds peace among the dead. Wow. That's, that's metaphorical. She, I, I really thought she was joking because, you know, Cebuanos, they are all funny people. And, <laughs> and she made fun of her, her own misery. But, but I, so I asked her in the end, after the talk, I said, are you sure? Did that really happen? And he said, yes, brother. Wow. I, I didn't find peace inside the church. They sent me out. I found peace in the cemetery. And I thought to myself, our churches and theologies are so close. We could not even hear the voices of the victims. Wow. Ironically, they went to the cemetery and found peace. Hmm. This for me is a metaphorical image of a close theology that does not hear the voices of the victims. That is why the more we open ourselves and our theologies and theories to practice, well, the more we will hear the voice of God. Because if God speaks among the victims, as the Bible says, then he should be in, in the life of practice. Well, Gustavo Gutierrez, the liberation theologian, says, uh, theology is only a second act. Mm -hmm. The first act is, in fact, praxis. And, and that connects with the theological method that I was trying to pursue. I love it. One thing you said I want to say before I close this up, the praxis is where God is, not theory. Father Daniel Franklin Pilario, thank you for your faithfulness, your incarnational ministry, yes, your prophetic voice, and your leadership. We're so grateful to have you and look forward to speaking with you again. And thank you to all of our listeners for receiving this very important word for us and in our time. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for inviting me into this forum. I, I am very grateful. Thank you.